Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And we find ourselves in verse 12 this morning. A verse that is probably one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. It is referred to affectionately as the golden rule. And we find the golden rule known by many in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Let's read it together. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I began teaching in Sunday school Shortly after getting saved, I was probably 18 years old, I started teaching in the Sunday school program at the church I attended, and that's how my teaching career began. And I found that often what would help the children learn the various doctrines or elements that we were studying that particular morning was to create a summary statement, a summary statement. Something that would be memorable, something that they could grasp quickly to help them understand the big picture or the overall emphasis of what we would be discussing and teaching that day. If I were to have to create a summary, space, uh, a summary sentence for the uh, verse here in front of us, it would be do, comma, not just do not do. Now, of course, as you can tell, that is my Sunday school teacher coming out in me once again. Do, not just do not do. During the time of Jesus, there were two prominent rabbis known in Jerusalem that were very much opposed to one another's positions concerning the Torah, the law. One of those rabbis was named Hillel. The other one was named Shami. And these two rabbis were probably the the most known rabbis in all of Judaism at that time. They contributed greatly to a work called the Mishnah. And one day when they were together, history tells us that a Gentile asked them both if they could summarize the totality of the Torah in one sentence. The Gentile wanted to know, what is the meaning of the, of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? If you could give me a summary statement, one sentence on it, what would that sentence be? We have a gentleman here today that I think challenged me more than anyone else uh, as a teacher. When he would come to me and say, listen, I want to know about so-and-so or such-and-such, but I need you to explain it to me in five minutes or less. And he was, uh, he was true, and uh, he was sincere. And I would uh, often say, well, Doug, oh, I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> I'll do my best. But there's a lot of wisdom in that, because it cuts through a lot of the supposition, it cuts through a lot of the minutiae, and gets right to the heart of the point. In fact, I have often discovered that when you ask someone a question, If they are very wordy in answering it, 
it may be a result of them not truly knowing what the answer is. Just something to keep in the back of your mind. Have you ever noticed that when a parent challenges a teenager on something that they possibly have done wrong, the teenager will come up with this vast explanation of what they did wrong. You know that they're guilty right then and there. My dad knew I was guilty just by looking at me because I always was guilty and there wasn't usually another option. Summary statements can be very helpful and Jesus uses a summary statement here in direct reply to Hillel and Shammai. For when that Gentile asked them as they were together to sum up the Torah, Shammai would not do it at all. He felt that that was insulting to the Torah. It couldn't simply be contained in one sentence. He felt that he would be doing it injustice by trying to summarize it in that way. And I believe he was sincere in his feeling uh, that way. But Hillel took an opportunity to answer that gentleman's question. And this is the way he answered. If I could summarize the Torah in one sentence, it would be this, he replied. Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is mere commentary, he said. And I thought that was very interesting. Jesus, knowing that this was a familiar saying to all that were listening to him here at the Sermon of the Mount, he begins now with the word therefore in verse 12, summarizing what I believe is probably the entire sermon from verse 17 of chapter 5 until this point. I think it is also interesting that this statement directly follows the goodness of God revealed in God giving good gifts to those who ask of him. And now Jesus is summarizing the entirety of his teaching in this statement, the statement we know as the golden rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now there are significant differences in what Jesus is saying compared to that of what Hillel said. And it is found in the issue of doing. Where Hillel framed it in a negative context, Jesus frames this in a positive one. When we talk about sin, and unfortunately I think today in our Christian culture, sin isn't discussed enough any longer. We have mastered the art of justifying almost every type of behavior in one sense or the other. But when we do discuss sin, we often discuss it from the perspective of those things that we should not do. And yet, sin is twofold. Not only does it include those things that we should not do, but the other side of the coin is those things that we should do. Theologically, it's called sins of commission, those things that we should not do, and those things that we should do and don't, we call those sins of omission. Jesus turns this from Rabbi Hillel's negative context when he talks about do not do 
to anyone those things that you would hate for them to do to you, to a positive, where Jesus says, now do unto others those things that you would have them do unto you. And this is significant. The second portion of the golden rule statement that we must know and look at is two small words represented by the English term, this is. When Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets, it is different than when Jesus uses that same statement later on, and Matthew recording it for us, when Jesus says that all of what you say hang the law and the prophets. He was with the religious leaders. The religious leaders asked him, which is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. There's a significant difference to the the statements in which he was making. Again, he is trying to help the Jewish people understand what he means when he says that unless their righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, they will by no means enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is continuously trying to get to the heart of the Torah, the heart of the law. And he says here that it is not a negative connotation in simply not doing to others those things that we do not want to have done to us, but it is in a positive context that this is the law and the prophets that you do unto others as you would have people do unto you. I think that is very interesting. It may be something that you haven't noticed before. The Jewish rabbis were more concerned about don'ts than they ever were about do's. And you see that throughout the Gospels. When Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders in Luke chapter 10, again the question was asked, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And he said these things unto them, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. For this hangs the law and the prophets. The immediate question from the religious leaders and the scribes was, who is my neighbor? They were more concerned about doing something onto someone that they shouldn't, rather than just meeting the need of the person in which they found. Again, they were motivated and moved by those things that they didn't want to have happen to them so therefore don't do it on to others and jesus turns this on its head and says no now do those things that you want others to do to you the religious leaders were constantly framing the old testament law into a bunch of don'ts and i believe there's reason for this It wasn't simply just religious tendency, which I think played a role in it, or the influence of tradition, precedence and tradition. But I do believe that this is structured after the ideas found in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
where God gives a plethora of things that they should not do, and if they do do those things, they will suffer great consequences. And then the law of the things that they should do, or the instruction on the things that they should do, were much smaller. But Jesus turns this all around and says, look it. We should be more concerned about what we do unto others than what we don't do unto others. The essence of the Good Samaritan parable frames that and illustrates that for us. Very interesting. Details count, right? When you go to Mark's Gospel, and if you'd like to turn there, I'd like you to see this for yourself. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34 is one of the accounts given to us in the Synoptic Gospels. But notice what Jesus says within it. Very interesting. And I think sometimes this is missed because of the similarity that it has with other passages in the other Gospels themselves. But notice with me, if you will. Chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he, that is Jesus, had answered them well and asked him, which is first, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. And the other commandment, notice what he says here, and the second is like it. This is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to clarify something at this point, if I may. The manner in which Jesus is using this as an instruction is not prescribing to the individual to learn how to love themselves before they may love others. It is assumed within the statement that the person loves themselves already sufficiently enough. And therefore, the love that is great towards yourself now express that love to others. That's what he's saying here. Because we are seeing more and more in Christianity that is telling us that before we can become the Christians that we need to become, We need to learn to love ourselves. I think that's directly influenced in the self-esteem movement and the self-help movement. And I also believe that it is truly one of the founding doctrines of the progressive Christianity movement in America today. Loving ourselves in the manner in which they prescribe says that we are the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. But Christianity of the Bible does not does not subject Christ to a mere supplement in the life of us. He is meant to be preeminent in our life, meaning He is over all things. This is what Paul meant when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. For I have died to myself, he is saying. If we try to live Christianity, walk in a Christian faith, with us at the center of it, we are going to be gravely disappointed. And as a result, we are going to believe that God may not be real. It's a direct correlation to the two. 
Jesus is stating here, and he's assuming that the individual understands that what he is saying is that you already love yourself sufficiently enough. You know, Paul brings this up as you go to Ephesians 5. When he talks about the husband loving the wife, he says, now love the wife as you love your own flesh. It's already there, that love, that affection. And this is more than self-preservation merely. This is a, an affection that would place you at the center of your existence. As a Christian, Christ shall be preeminent and needs to be preeminent in all things. But after saying that, he then goes on. Notice this. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but He. And he then goes on to love Him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all your, the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more. Notice what he says here than all the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. In the Jewish tradition, the burnt offerings, the sacrifices unto God became the moments within their religious existence. It's like an individual who claims Christianity and only attends church on Easter and in Christmas. It became a token display of their faith in God. They did so because others, and it was socially acceptable to do so. But now, taking a bigger step back, what's more important is loving God. And that isn't just on certain days of the year or certain days of the week today. It is every single day, at every single moment and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are superior to the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And Jesus agrees, verse 34. Now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared ask him a question. I bet. I bet. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. We as Christians, facing the uncertainty of the future ahead of us, many within Christianity across our nation are asking, what role shall we play? Who are we any longer? How can I reach the lost for Jesus Christ? It is now going to become imperative, no longer optional, but necessary to live out our Christian faith faithfully. And that's why we are doing this series together called The Kingdom of Heaven, to remind us what faithful Christianity looks like in a world antagonistic to God. We are in a unique state here in our country, without a doubt. And I want you to be aware of something, and this is very important. When you look at the book of Acts, when you look at the epistles of Paul and you read them, please remember that Acts and the Epistles and so forth are all being introduced to areas, regions, nations, peoples, etc. from a pre-Christian perspective, right? 
They had not truly known who Christ is. Their understanding of Yahweh, Jehovah, was from maybe the Jewish remnants amongst them, these Gentile nations per se. But today we are living in a post-Christian environment, which makes it quite challenging. Now, I'm not, the, the principles are the same. But let us understand that we are going to have to, again, separate what we have known to be what I affectionately called American Christianity. And now we have to become more like biblical Christians if we are going to affect change in our nation. For example, we as evangelical Christians have enjoyed a position of privilege, if I may, in the sense that we understood, and most in our nation understood, that our country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And that's wholeheartedly true. And occupying uh, the position of Christian allowed us to fit within the constitutional governance very well. But even the founding fathers knew that if Christianity were to dissipate, the Constitution wouldn't be relevant any longer for the nation. Because they assumed that the moral governance of the individual would be that of God, operating within not only the Constitution, but the Bill of Rights, etc. Now as more and more people move away from that, and I've read article after article that individuals no longer want to refer to the moral standards here in America as Judeo-Christian values. They want to separate us even farther from that reality. So that privilege that we had in association with, uh, as Christians, with the association of a, to a constitution written from a Christian worldview may be dissipating before us quickly. So therefore, we need to understand and remind ourselves what it was like to live in a nation that was hostile to Christianity. And I'm not talking simply physically hostile, but intellectually hostile. Antagonists. A nation dominated by agnosticism, or even worse, atheism. And yet we stand up and say, no, we are no longer going to live for ourselves. We're going to die to ourselves. We're going to take up our cross and follow after Him. They would look at us and say, what foolishness. To say that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves, what a futile position. For eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Christianity must be defined by the Bible in which we've been given. And as we notice Christianity permeating into the Gentile world around Israel, knowing, uh, of course, that Israel therefore collapsed in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. Read, interestingly, the writings to those that were called part of the dispersa throughout the New Testament. And you will find very quickly that these people displaced often found themselves isolated, excluded, and aliens amongst the societies in which they found themselves. Losing their personal identity, their national heritage, etc. 
The Gentiles who came to saving faith in Jesus Christ moved from the understanding of a plethora of gods, a pluralistic society, a paganistic society, to one that embraced a monotheistic idea of God. And Jesus says at the heart of all of this is this rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. When Paul the Apostle comes to the book of Romans, and he talks about the fulfilling of the law in and through the person of Jesus Christ, if you'd like to fast forward with me, I'd like to take you to Romans chapter 8. As in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, as Paul writes about the weakness of the flesh and the ability of Christ, notice that if this is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that is to do unto others as you would have others do unto you, the definition of the righteous requirements not only refers to the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also the perfection in which he lived in often sometimes forgot because often when the book of Romans is read, studied, or commented upon, they simply contain it to a consistent explanation of soteriology, how a person gets saved. But in Paul's writing to the Gentiles, not only, of course, was that a huge part of why he was writing the book of Romans, but he also wanted them to know about the perfection of Jesus Christ and why Christ was the uh, accepted sacrifice unto God the Father for the sins of the world. But notice what Paul writes here. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in His flesh that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us who, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I bring this to you this morning because I want to expand your understanding of that term righteous requirement. It is dealing with sin here. And what the flesh was weak and incapable of doing, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on, on, on the account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled. Now we just stated a minute ago that sin has two sides to it. The sins of commission, those things that we should not do, and the things of omission, those things we should do and do not do. Christ fulfilled both of those. Christ not only was perfect in the things that He did not do, but He was perfect in the things that He did do, and therefore fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law. Not just simply atoning for the sin of the world in the sense of all those bad things that we have done, but also providing for us the righteousness required to stand in perfection through Christ before God the Father. This is huge to our understanding, especially when those moments and times that we fail and think we've blown it so much that there's no way we could ever enter into the presence of God again. 
being reminded constantly and consistently by Satan how far we have fallen, condemned to a position of irredeemability. And that's when we need to remember that not only did God provide for me the forgiveness of sin through His blood, of those things that I've done and I should not do, but He's also clothed me in His righteousness. And therefore, it is not dependent on me in Christ to provide my perfection. This is what Paul's saying, that which has begun in the Spirit, why now do we try to perfect it in the flesh? He is now saying that when we stand before God, we stand before Him perfect in and through Christ and Christ alone. And I believe that if you track farther on in Romans, looking at Romans 13, 8-10, Paul certainly saw this. This golden rule that Jesus had laid forward in Matthew 7, 12. When he writes this in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, when he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not cover it. And if there is any other commandments, all are summed up in this saying, namely, You shall love. Notice that all the other ones, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. And all of those are negated by the one that says you shall. By loving your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is extraordinary. When we talk about love, we're talking about agape, not the self-centered love that we throw around so loosely today. That within three seconds into a relationship, we're already telling one another, oh, I love you, I love you too, oh, I love you, you know. Until that individual no longer gets what they want from the relationship and then say, I've fallen out of love with you. The Bible says love is not a feeling. It's a verb, it's an action, it's a commitment. It's a choice. God chose to love. He chose to love because He is love. Christ framed that in the word agape, a word that was seldom used at that time, but resonated with the people because of its obscurity and their uncertainty in what it actually meant. Paul faced this problem of trying to explain this word agape to those in a Greek society in the Gentile world. They knew phileo, they knew eros very well. They knew storge, a word that is seldom talked about, but it was a a love for an inanimate, inanimate object. But this word agape, what do you mean by it? Because there's so much ambiguity that surrounds it. That he penned 1 Corinthians 13. And that in 1 Corinthians 13, it wasn't his attempt to simply define the word love. But in so doing, he's not simply defining, but he's describing the person of Jesus Christ. That's why uh, he saw from the very beginning that John was right when he said that God is love. 
This is the, where love originates, the origins of love. It's out of the character of God. This was part of what Jesus said to the disciples. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The love that I show you is a direct character of the Father himself. This is the love that he is describing, that Paul is describing. This is the love that we should have for one another. Jesus said this love was so significant that in John 13, 31, and 35, he says in verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This was going to be our identifying characteristic that amongst the world that they looked at us, saw the love for one another that we had for each other, and saw that they are truly followers of Jesus Christ. I don't care what pomp and circumstance surrounds a Christian. I don't care what outward garments an individual wears to, to emulate their piety towards God. Jesus Christ would say this, that if you truly want to represent me properly to the world, then love one another as I have loved you. That's what he would say. True righteousness. True Christianity. Why is this love so significant that it would be the identifying characteristic of a true Christian? It's because it's unnatural. Our natural desires is to love ourselves. But the love that God is asking us to love with is a sacrificial love, an unconditional love. It's a love that would lead us to love our enemies and our friends alike. It is a love that overcomes circumstances that are unspeakable. It's so significant. This love allows for the forgiveness of one another within the Christian church. This love is the motivator behind the grace given to one another. Because let us remember that though Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, this is the law and the prophets, Matthew then later records for us and he says that all of the law and prophets hang upon this. That word in the Greek for hang upon means depends upon completely. It's like if you were going to try to hang a picture on a wall without some kind of hook or nail. You can stand there and hold that picture up as long as you want and it's never going to adhere. It's never going to stay up unless that nail is present. Jesus said you are not going to fulfill all of the law of the prophets unless that love is present within you. You're not going to do it. It all hangs and hinges upon that. And Jesus knew that this love was something that we couldn't generate in and of ourselves, so it becomes the prominent fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And there is great debate amongst grammatical scholars if the following descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit are individual fruit or all aspects of the love produced by the Spirit within the life of the believer. I'll leave that one for you to discuss over lunch today. But notice with me, if you will, that before Paul gets into the fruit of the Spirit, before he begins in verses 16 of chapter 5 of Galatians, if you'd like to turn there, 
Before he says anything about walking in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, often, because of the precopies in our Bibles, those little headings that sometimes become annoying and hinder our flow rather than help our flow on occasion, notice what he says first. Notice what he says first just prior to that in chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. And the segue into the fruit of the Spirit becomes so much more obvious. Notice what he says. Before you get into 16 through 26, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, etc. Notice what happens just prior to that. Verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, that is freedom. But only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but to love one another. For all of the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Did you ever notice the correlation between the two? Paul is saying that the distinction of Christianity is loving one another as uh, Christ loved you, to love your neighbor as yourself, etc. And then he goes on to say that it is a complete work of the Spirit within the life of the believer. God allows us to love through the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that that love that he is asking us to love each other with is unnatural to us. We can't self-generate it. The depravity of our heart forbids it. It is a work of the Spirit within us. And when you see it in that light, it makes so much more sense when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in the individual compared to the works of the flesh. He's simply defining that which he states in verse 13. In our liberty, do not use our liberty for the flesh, and here are the works of the flesh, but to love one another. Here is the fruit of the Spirit, love. Interesting. And throughout the New Testament, we see this over and over and over and over and over again. When James began to write his New Testament Proverbs, as many um, scholars call it, he alluded to something called the royal law. No longer was he as a Jewish man governed by the Mosaic Covenant and the law of Moses. He now was governed by something superior to that, vastly superior to that. For his king was King Jesus and the law in which he governed by. He called the royal law. And the royal law is found in James 2.8 when he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. The royal law. That's what governs us today. That's what moves us to do unto others as we would have others do unto us. That's what allows us to see the Samaritan in need and not to pass by on the other side. It's that love for one another. 
We are not looking to justify our actions by what we should not do. But we are looking each and every day to live out our Christian faith by what we do as an individual. There's one more element, if I may, bring out to your attention. In verse 12, notice the structure of the sentence. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. If I may sum that up, it is this, you first. If you want men to respond to you properly, then you first interact with them properly. If you want them to love you, then you love them. I think I read that, that God even exampled that for us. We love Him because He first loved us. He did it first, and we responded to it. I cannot tell you the number of people that are constantly waiting for someone else to love them first, and then I will love them back. The Bible says, no, you love first. You do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Now, if I may conclude with a historical illustration, I'd like to, if I may. Many of us know that Christianity was assumed by the Roman Empire in the early uh, 300s A.D. And when Christianity became the dominant religion of Rome at that time, the Emperor Constantine and their, his role in all of that and so forth. I'm sure you're aware of that. But that wasn't the beginning of the effect of Christianity upon the Roman Empire. And many frame that decision by Constantine, and they do so wrongly historically. This was Dan Brown and the whole uh, Da Vinci Code nonsense and all of that. They believe that Constantine did so to bring rest, a pragmatic response, to bring rest to the Roman Empire because there was so much tension between Christianity and everybody else. Well, there was unrest. But it wasn't the Christians you know, uh, going up against the Roman Empire. It was the Roman Empire coming against Christianity. That's clear. But what many people don't know is what happened earlier in 22 A.D. to 235 A.D. At that time, the Roman emperor Alexander Severus was in control. And in the historical writings, he indicates that Christians had an incredible impact upon him personally and the Roman Empire when he said this. One historian wrote, The common description of the saying as the golden rule is traditionally traced to the Roman emperor Alexandrius Severus, who thought not a Christian was reputably reputably so impressed by the comprehensiveness of this maximum of Jesus as a guide to good living that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber. He was so impressed by this. This golden rule this is where the term comes from because he this roman emperor had it inscribed on his wall because he saw how effective it was 
that it governed a people like nothing else, their love for one another. And he was so impressed by it. And I believe that that began the groundwork to allow emperors a hundred years later to finally see the value of Christianity, especially if the antagonism was coming from those within the Roman Empire who were not governed by Christianity against those who were governed by Christianity, what a better way to bring civil unrest to an end than to have people love one another, right? Incredible, incredible impact of this. This is what we must do going forward. We must love one another as Christ has loved us that we may demonstrate for the whole world that we are truly followers of Him. The world doesn't want to hear our words anymore. They are so inundated by words from every direction. They don't know who or what to believe any longer. They need to see it. And it may take decades to convince them. But that's what they need to see. We must love our neighbor as we love ourselves already. We must show this sacrificial agape love and we must do so first if we want and desire others to love us. Not doing it solely for that purpose. Because we must love our enemies who we cannot expect that from. But if I want to encourage a congregation to love one another, if I want to encourage our church or the Christian community in America to love one another, let it all begin with you and with me, showing that love to one another. Remember, do, not just don't do.